Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Hey, Miguel Iterate, back on the Lights Out podcast, and uh, we're in deep dive territory, a return customer. And, uh, you know, since we took a little hiatus and we've come back, we've kind of rededicated to the old school guys. And, you know, if we're in the old school, now now we're joined by a professor here, actually, because this gentleman, <laughs> folks, once again, I can't tell you enough how much this guy is a, a fountain of knowledge, and uh, we're going to have some fun with the early part of his career. Mike, what do you think? Jeremy's back. This yeah, so Jeremy, I have got a small portion of your career broken down, and I've got <laughs> about 15 pages of notes. <laughs> it's, I've even like eliminated fights. So what we're going to do is I've interwoven some of the big MFS title fights, Robbie Lawler debut, Jens Pulver, things of that nature um, into your career, because um, whether you like to admit this or not, the fighters that were in those bouts had said that you were pretty much the architect of how they approached certain situations in the fight. And um, I, I thought it was, it's kind of important to include that stuff. Well, it's very kind of them to say, but uh, <clears throat> I do my part. I like to train. I like to, I like to help people. So they're, in the, they're, they're the one in the ring getting punched in the face. Right. Right. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're the quintessential teammate though, you know, and, and yeah. like, I, I know Mike's going to take us early, early on. And I remember you, even in the early days, like when, you know, you were, a relatively young fighter and uh, you were still a great corner man. You were still a guy who would jump in and ref and do stuff like that. And uh, you know, you had some promising guys even before you got to Militich hanging around you. Um, yeah. You know, Mike, uh, you know, where are we going to start? Oh, here I mean, we're, let's talk about gyms. I mean, I, you start with Jesse Jones, one of your early training partners, you yep. got all of that down, but Miguel, let's just start hot. Jeremy, you're a tried and true proven professional that has fought all over the world against some of the biggest names. Your gym in Utah, how many pro fighters do you have out of it right now? Um, you know, it fluctuates all the time. Uh, at one point I had a couple of dozen. Now I've got a new crop of mostly amateurs. I've got a couple of pros, but it's mostly the, the newer guys getting started again. People kind of go through cycles. They fight for a while. They retire. They move away, you know. I, how many pro fighters travel to your gym for camps? Um, you know, not so much anymore. Uh, again, it all kind of goes in cycles. Uh, you know, at one point I had, uh, you know, back when uh, when I was fighting regularly, right around the era when I fought Chuck, but like Rich Franklin would come in. Uh, John Alessio came in quite a bit. Um, Joe Stevenson came by, Jay Huron. Uh, you know, we had a lot, of, a lot of tough guys that would come through and train. Joe Riggs came up and trained with us. Joe Dirksen's a good friend of mine, trained with us a lot, so – different era back then now like i said it's just i got a, i got a new crop of amateurs that were raising and I, i'm kind of i changed the focus of my gym a little bit you know for the longest time i really wanted to focus on training fighters and that is that is awesome and rewarding but um i kind of feel like somewhere along the lines i i forgot the real purpose of martial arts is to try to help you know help the 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 people that need help so i'm kind of trying to get back to that more so the gym is a much more family feel now I, i'm wanting to you know i still train some people that want to fight but mostly 
you know, I want people that, that need martial arts more than people that want to fight. Absolutely. I obviously respect that. But the real question is when you've got gyms like Jackson Wink, Greg Nelson in Minnesota, guys that have proven to be good coaches, obviously, but have zero fighting background. Does it bother you that you're not kind of thrown in the same category as them? In terms of um, no, fight destination? Really. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I guess, you know, might bug me a little bit, but I, I don't, I don't really care that much. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with what I've done and I'm happy helping the people that I'm helping now. Um, you know, I, I don't really think about that, but that's not too much. It, it bothers me. It's just <laughs> so you know, it does. So Miguel, let's start March 1st, 1996. The event allegedly was held at the Atlanta judo Academy. You fight another Midwest person, Rick Gravison. Yeah. Um, how does that fight come about? It's obviously pretty far away from, I think you were in Nebraska at yeah. the time. Yeah, I was in Omaha. Yeah. So that fight was a really uh, strange event. Um, and honestly, to this day, I don't even know all the details of how it came to be. Uh, but basically, I was training uh, with my friends, uh, you know, Brian Dunn, who now I believe is the ABC commissioner. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, so we trained together. My brother, Matt, Jesse Jones, as you said, couple of the guys we were training um and we got contacted by a guy named i believe his name was tom huggins and he was a promoter coordinator matchmaker something like that and he said hey i'm in contact with these guys down in atlanta they're doing some fights if you guys be interested in fighting they'll fly you down there and, and uh, take care of all that uh so we jumped at the chance you know the sport was still pretty new um you know it wasn't like it is now where you know, you're in an organization and they offer you a contract against a specified opponent uh, and, and then you negotiate money. This was Tom going, hey, do you guys want to fight? Like, we'll take you down to Atlanta and we'll fight. So we're like, yeah, sure. So we hop on a plane to Atlanta and uh, we get down there. They put us up in a hotel room. I think they gave us $50 so we could buy some food. <laughs> and then we all show up the night of the event. And that was it. I didn't know who I was fighting until he stepped onto the mat. And you're, you're did you muted, know Graveson? No. Mike, you're, you're muted. So that, that's where you met Graveson, then. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where I met him. I had no idea who he was. So all, so all they did... Go ahead. Was there any audience at all? Because I've seen the video. There was a little bit of an audience. It was, it was really weird, man. Uh, honestly, as we went down there, I, we were all pretty scared. I know I was scared. I was thinking that maybe we were walking into some kind of snuff film because they, <laughs> it was, it was really, it was like that. It was scary. Uh, so they pick us up at the hotel in a limo and they drive us down to the middle of the ghetto in Atlanta somewhere. Uh, and we're like, we pull up on this dark street with like burned out uh, street lamps and, and shit like that. It was kind of sketchy. We go into this building. Everything's closed. It's like, it's like nine o'clock at night. Everything is closed. Um, uh, and we go into this, what looks to be like a giant metal utility shed. And we go in there and there's some mats in the corner and there's like people in like tuxedos and evening gowns drinking champagne out of, out of, you know, fancy glasses. Uh, one of them actually was the, the pro wrestler Diamond Dallas Page. Oh, cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. He was, he was at my first fight. Um, but yeah, so there's like maybe a dozen people watching and they had, uh, there was not even a cage I and mean, you've seen the video. It was just an open mat. 
And what they did is they had people with those old school, uh, like American gladiator kicking shields that you would, you would use to like block people. And they just had three or four of those guys that their job was to run around the edge. And if you guys got close, they would just shove you back to the middle. And it never really happened much. Everybody kind of stayed in the middle, but that, that was it. So we show up there and they're like, okay, uh, you guys are about the same size. So you guys are going to fight. You guys are about the same size. So you guys will fight. Nobody knew anything about anybody's opponent. At least we didn't. And that was it. I ended up fighting Rick Gravison and I was scared to death because he was a big, scary looking guy. <laughs> so, so in essence, they flew you guys in paid for a hotel, $50. Like I've seen this video. There seems to be more people on the street looking through the windows than there were actually in the place watching. So, so you might've actually seen other videos. So that's another thing that was an interesting thing because they did this several times. So I'm not sure. Have you seen my fight with Rick? No, I saw Scott Ferozo's and it's listed on the same card. Right. But that's, that was a different location. So, yeah. So here's, I don't know how much of this is true, if any of it, but this is the story that I have heard kind of through the grapevine and kind of pieced together. So do you guys remember that, that show, uh, Mars, martial arts, reality, superstars. The of main course. Event, yeah. The main event ended up being Murillo against Tom Erickson. Right? Hey, dude. Tom Erickson, he gets criticized for being like boring. In yeah. my opinion, it's a masterful, incredible um, effort in regards to solving high-end jiu-jitsu in Marilla Bustamante's corner. To me, it's I can watch that all day long. To me, it's brilliance. Yeah. So what I was told was that the people that did that show were the ones that were coordinating all these fights. And what they were doing was they were looking for fighters to be alternates for that tournament. So they would just grab groups of people and fly them to a location, put together the fights, film them all, and then they would kind of pick and choose who they felt like putting in there. So at my show where I fought, it was me and Rick. We fought each other, obviously. My brother Matt fought one of Rick's buddies. Um, Brian Dunn fought somebody from another group. Yasunori Matsumoto fought. Scott Froza wasn't there he was at another event that they did some other time in another location. So that's what I'm referring to. Okay. That, yeah. That's the event that I think you've seen. Cause I, 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 so after the fight, they took us all back to one of the homes of one of the, the guys that were doing this and they showed us some of the videos of some of the other fights. And I think I remember seeing, uh, I think I saw Scott Frozo's fight. I saw another fight by a Muay Thai guy. I can't remember his last name, but, uh, his first name was Kevin something, and he stood out because he beat the dog shit out of some guy. But yeah, they were all just like, they were all just like, uh, just little backyard fights that they would fly people in, collect everybody, pair off the fights, let people fight, uh, and filmed it all. And I don't know so, that anybody actually ended up going into an alternate spot for the Mars show, but that's what I later found out we were told they were doing. Maybe they just wanted to fly people in and watch people fight. That's very possible, too. That's wild. That's wild. Yeah, they they See, did it. From what I understand, they did it five or six times. Um, so, yeah, Ferozo's had one location. I'm sure he had half a dozen fights, you know, at that event. And then the event I was at, and there's a few others, I was told. So you win by armbar, 154. What was your impression of Matsumoto? Because he's kind of one of those names that flies under the radar on most diehard MMA like, yeah, I mean, I didn't fans. know who he was then. I mean, the sport was so new. I didn't know anybody. Like I said, I thought I was going to fight 
for for the rich people's entertainment and then get assassinated and left in a ditch. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I didn't know who he was. Um, I you know I won my fight. I was super happy. I remember watching his fight. Uh, he fought. If I remember correctly, he fought uh, a, a really big muscular. Uh, no, no, no. That I take that back. That was a different fight. He fought a big fat guy. If I remember correctly. And he ended up winning because the guy fought with a tank top and he ended up wrapping the tank top around his neck and choking him. Oh, wow. I, I might be getting that mixed up with somebody else, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure that was it. It was like a Jerry Bolander move with uh, yeah. Ferozo. Yep. Um, so Jesse Jones. About, about Matsumoto, I, I don't know if he, I'm going to ask you if he was there. Uh, an original Matsumoto student that later joined Militich and had his own run is Dave Strasser. Was Strasser with him? Uh, no. Well, I don't think so. I wasn't training with Pat at the time, so I wouldn't have known who Dave was. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't okay. think he did. Just checking, just okay. checking. Yeah. I didn't All know right, that so Dave Jesse Jones is, That doesn't surprise me though now. He, 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 just a foot, Mike, I'm sorry, but just a footnote on Matsumoto. It's, it's interesting and one of those things that's a little bit sad. He's known for that hardcore style. Dave actually went to his retirement uh, about a year ago. And he said he's in bad shape, like, like you know, he has a hard time putting pants on in terms of bending That's over bad. and things like that. But yeah. he went, he fought hardcore, even in training, yes, till into his 60s kind of thing. Just that doesn't just surprise me, as hard as nails. All right, let's go back to Jeremy. Jeremy, Jesse Jones. Yes. He's one of your early training partners. He ended his career at 15 and 5. He's one of those guys that's kind of surprising that never made a UFC debut. Yeah. What was it like training with him? Uh, he was incredibly talented. Uh, he was younger than the rest of us. I think I was, I don't know, early 20s. I think he was maybe 19 or 20, so a little, little bit younger than us. But uh, he had a uh, he had a decent taekwondo background, and he was incredibly explosive and athletic. Um, but he had, uh, for all his talent, he he struggled mentally to, to, to have confidence in, in his ability, you know, he was really it's good. But yeah. It's always crazy, man. The guys that seem to have the most talent are the ones that have the least confidence. Yeah. So he had yeah, a couple yeah, fights and uh, he had, he had a couple of really good wins. Um, and then he had a fight. He fought Shoney Carter on one of the shows locally in Omaha and Shoney broke him mentally. Like Jesse was, was beating him up, would stand up and, and knock him around. Shoney would take him down and then get up and like wave him up, like kind of kind of mocking him. And uh, Jesse just got so frustrated that he eventually tapped just sitting on the mat. Ooh. Yeah, Shoney, Shoney just, just you know, Shoney's a, Shoney's a good fighter, and he's, a, he's a, a good at playing head games. But he just, you know, Jesse so just couldn't handle the pressure. Jesse Jones submitted Kaz Daniels, Henry Matamoros, and Dave Manet. Yeah. So everybody helped. Absolutely, yeah. He was incredibly talented. That's amazing to me. So you look at the guy's record. You went to a decision with Lusau. Lusau goes to the UFC. Yep. I, I, I was shocked that he never at least made an appearance you know, through the octagon walls. Yep, and I think uh, he, he could have. Certainly back in that day, he was good enough to have done it. But, like, I, if I remember correctly, the fight with uh, David Loazzo, too. Like, Loazzo kind of played some head games, and Jesse didn't fight well because of it. And yeah, Jesse was... Yeah, absolutely, he was. He's absolutely there, good enough to fight in the UFC. But did you keep in touch with him? Because and then I always thought it was like you moved to Iowa and he stayed in Omaha, and that was kind of like 
yeah. where where it didn't work out for him. But yeah, uh, so I'm not sure how to. I don't want to. I don't want to overstate this, but it seems like generally when I am at a gym, there is some cohesiveness and focus, and then when <laughs> I leave, it kind of kind of fizzles out. So yeah, when I was in Iowa, you know, it was me, my brother Jesse, Brian Dunn. Uh, we had a handful of other guys, Scott Morton, Jesse, uh, uh, Shane Swaney. We had a handful of guys. We we're all good, and we we're all focused and doing well. When I moved to Iowa, I don't, you know, they all kind of splintered and kind of went their own ways. And some of them stayed training, some of them didn't. Some of them stayed connected with the sport, some didn't. Uh, so, Jeremy, let me let me further your statement to kind of help clarify it. I, I, my belief, having never walked into a gym that you were even present at, is that you take such a large role at the gym in regards to like duties and responsibilities that when you leave, it's a, a void that's very difficult to fill. And sometimes people just don't understand how many plates you had spinning at the same time. I, I guess, I mean, I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to agree with that without sounding arrogant, but I mean, I guess maybe that's, that's, that's of all the fighters I know, like you're, you're going to be in the top percentage, you know, 5%, the top of total dedication to this. You know what I mean? And and I think that that's really what shows other people, you know, other people like, Hey, they like to go out. They like to get their picture taken. They like to do blogs. They like to do, you know, yeah. Jeremy's pretty much a gym person and he always yeah. has been a good training part. I want to train, so, I want to teach. That's really all I, so that's, I would say a fiend. Like like a like a like an addict is with drugs. Jeremy is with the gym. Yeah, we agree on that at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's I, I, like, I like I like this part. I don't I don't like I don't like the fanfare. I don't like the the spotlight. I like the training and the fighting and the teaching. Hey, well, while we're uh, on here, you, did you mention Scott Morton? Yeah. So you know. That was one of those highlight real losses in the UFC, and and he was like a friend of yours, a training partner of yours. Yeah. How did you guys register that loss? Because he got he's the guy that got smashed by Pat Smith at UFC. No, that, that was uh, Scott Morris. Oh, okay. Scott, oh, Scott Morton was uh, actually one of the one of my students early on. He now, if I remember correctly, he runs his own gym now, and he's a black belt jiu-jitsu, and he's he's quite good. Uh, but yeah, he was. I, I think he started training with us when he was 16 or 17, maybe early. Uh, early sorry about confusing you. didn't know Scott Nor Morris then. I, I, um, I met him a few times. He was part of that same organization, but he was from another branch. Okay. So, but when when that so that when that loss went down, how did that go down in in the in the Midwest well, and stuff like that? Yeah, we were we were a little bit upset about that because when he got chosen to go to represent us, I I wanted to go as well. Like that, okay. that, I wanted that to be me. And so he got picked over me and who knows what have happened. I was still pretty raw and young then. I don't know that I would have done any better, but of course you always look back and oh, I could have won that fight. You know, you always armchair quarterback, everything. Okay. Gosh. Let's talk about your first tournament. It's May 11th, 1996, the Quad Cities Ultimate, something that later became Extreme Challenge. Yeah. Rick Adson and Mark Hansen are your opponents. Yep. Please bring us through it. So, uh, so I had, uh, 
Monty contacted us somehow. I think I, again, I, back in the day, man, some of this stuff, it doesn't register. I don't know how we got in contact with him, but I was in Omaha. He did a fight in the quad cities only about four hours away. He goes, Hey, we're gonna do this fight. Are you interested in trying it out? So I said, yes, I joined uh, the heavyweight tournament. Uh, Monty originally had a background in boxing. Uh, so the, he kind of based a lot of his initial stuff off of boxing. Cause we didn't really have a frame of reference. Right. So uh, if I remember correctly, boxing, over 190 is heavyweight or maybe cruiserweight. I mean, that's, that's cruiserweight. cruiserweight. Uh, so Monty decided, okay, we're going to follow boxing weight classes. 190 and up is heavyweight. I weighed 195. I didn't, I didn't understand anything about cutting weight. I weighed 195. The, the cutoff's 190. I guess that makes me a heavyweight. And, and, and then my opponent is probably 295. 295. Yeah. 285. <laughs> yeah. Huge and skilled. You know, so I fight, uh, I fought uh, Mike Adsit in my first round. Is it and, Rick or Mike? Uh, uh, Mike. I, I fought, I, yep, I fought okay. Rick in my first fight, Rick uh, uh, Graveson, who we actually became really good friends later. We trained together at Pats for many years. Um, yeah. yeah, so I fight, uh, and Rick actually fought on that same card. He fought, uh, <laughs> kind of a funny story. So we show up at the, the hotel, and I, I had just fought Rick a few months before that on the, the Atlanta fights. And I, I run into Rick walking out of the hotel and he's like, Oh, Hey, are you here? I was like, yeah, good to see you. He goes, are you fighting? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm fighting. I'm in the heavyweight. He's like, Oh, thank God. Like, cause he was fighting in the, in the, the middleweight or lightweight or whatever they called it in the under 190 tournament. So he was worried that I was going to be fighting in the same division as him. <laughs> cool. So anyway, so I, I, so I ended up fighting Mike Adson in the first round and I, I win, uh, but he, you know, I ended up triangling, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then I fought Hanson in the finals. And that's when I realized that giving up 100 pounds to a skilled fighter is, is a big problem. So Mark Hanson, a future training partner with you, is this what planted the seed to move to Iowa? Yep, absolutely. So Pat Militich was the main event and he fought Matsumoto on that card. And Hanson uh, was... A rematch. Yeah, yeah, that was their second fight. Uh, and so Mark Hansen won the tournament, obviously. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we started chatting a bit and I realized that these were guys that were training with more of a focus and a purpose than I was. Cause at the time me and my buddies were just sort of just kind of floundering around, figuring out what we could do. We would just get together and just beat the shit out of each other, which was actually one of the benefits for me in, in the early days of fighting, because I wasn't super skilled, but I was tough as shit. Like I was no stranger to getting beat up. So, you know, a lot of people like your typical Taekwondo guy or karate guy or, or judo guy, like they're, they're used to competition and maybe hard competition in their style, but they're not used to getting fucked up. I was, <laughs> I was used to getting beat up pretty bad. So getting worked over in a fight didn't really phase me. I could, I could stay focused and keep working through that. Even if I was getting my ass kicked and that was a rare commodity back then. But I knew that like these guys had way more focus on training intelligently and training with a purpose. So I started going to uh, I started making trips out there like it, once or twice a month. I'd go out there for a weekend and stay with them and train with them. And then, yeah, eventually I moved out there. OK, so wait, 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 hold, on. Wait, hold on. I got so <clears throat> in the Lions, then they called it uh, jumping a guy in, I think. If I'm not mistaken, it's correct. So you show up at Militich's and like, you know, those guys are, you know, 
wrestler athletes and you know you're still a young kid you know without your shirt on you don't look like much yet you know what i mean you know yes. you, you know what i mean i'm being nice yes. you know I, I say that with respect but like they probably tried to beat the shit out of you when you showed up like how'd that how'd that first day go or or how, um you know so it, it wasn't that bad there wasn't there was no malice to it but they trained hard so it's not like hey here's a new guy we're gonna fuck him up it was, hey, here's another body. We train hard. We fuck each other up all the time. Welcome to the club. So, yeah, I got I got worked over quite a bit, but there was no malice to it or no no new guy hazing to it because they did the same thing to each other. They just trained hard, and that's, that's kind of what I wanted. So, you know, I, I definitely took my lumps, but that's kind of what shaped me to be who I am. So. Do you think that type of attitude – continued on and carried over because some of the training sessions at MFS are legendary in regards to the regional scene in, yeah. in regards to some of the savage beatings that take place. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it maybe got a little excessive. Um, it, it got worse after I moved to Utah. Uh, but yeah, so that's the thing like back in the day around those times, I think Pat, Pat and Mark uh, were really the, the only ones that had much experience in jujitsu. I believe that, Pat had gone to a Henzo Gracie seminar and he had a videotape set. And that was pretty much the extent of our knowledge. And Pat and Mark would just drill those techniques. And it was just fundamental stuff. Like what is the guard, how to pass the guard? What is the mount? What do you do when you're mounted on somebody? You know, just real basic stuff, but they trained it hard. And again, being a, you know, Midwest Iowa wrestler <laughs> mentality, that's all it was. It was work hard, you know, push hard, drive towards good technique. Pat had a, extensive kickboxing background as well as a wrestling background and then he was i think he and mark were both blue belts in jiu-jitsu um so and, and you know the funny we interviewed pat we did a deep dive with pat the one thing that we never really got to is he and hansen mark hansen who another early architect of the mfs they fought twice as children <laughs> fought each other yeah <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> yeah I uncovered that on like some sort of Davenport message board in regards. Oh, I was at the fight in like sixth grade. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me because they both have that same mentality. Yeah. And they've got big reputations as well. Both. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I just want to give a little bit of props to Hanson because this is a dude that, you know, this is an early Brock Lesnar type of guy because you, yep. you can find guys 280, like the UFC did. Remember Thomas Ramirez, Julian yep. Sanchez? Remember yep. guys like that? This guy's an athlete. You know, why don't you oh, tell, yeah. like, how does he compare to Brock Lesnar, like in your eyes? Uh, obviously, Lesnar was, was much more of a high level wrestler, but Hansen was, uh, obviously, he wasn't quite as fit. He was a little bit softer than Brock, but yeah, I mean, he weighed 280, and if he was shredded, he probably would have been 255. You know, so yeah, he, he's a very high level athlete. He was a very cerebral fighter as well. Polished stand up, good wrestling, good jujitsu, not just a big knucklehead thug. I'm going to overpower you because I'm 280. You know, he fought with, with good technique and, and a good, strong mindset. So yeah, very, very much so. Obviously, not the level of wrestler that Brock was, but you know. He was, he used he to guys that size. Top. Say again. Miguel? I'm sorry, Hanson went on to be a cop, right? That's why he didn't... He, he, was, he was a cop all along, yeah. Um, yeah, they made him quit. But yeah. usually guys that size, they tend to rely on how big they are rather than yeah. fight. 
And it's a very rare occasion you get a Brock Lesnar or a Mark Hansen. You know, it's they want to show you the potential that their body has. So, so funny thing you mentioned about that. You know, I, I fought Mark in the finals, and the ref says, Go, we clash. I duck and grab a body lock. He jumps to guard on me and tries to put me to guillotine. He's a hundred pounds heavier than me, and he jumps to guard. <laughs> so yeah, he was he was very technically sound and very technically driven. He was not a big dumb ogre that fought with power. He had power, but he was he fought with intelligence. So you went nine minutes and ten seconds with him. Yep, most of it him mounted on me, caving my head in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, pulling guard probably meant he wasn't overly concerned yet. You know? Well, maybe again, you know, you never know what was going on back in those days because we were all brand new. Like, you know, we at least I thought every time I stepped into the ring, I was potentially going to die. I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, it was a crazy world. But you know, so he jumps to guard maybe because he thought he had a guillotine, so he thought he would just finish it early. But again, we were all under the impression that, I mean, fighting was new. This is jujitsu. I'm going to put you in the guillotine. I'm going to end this quick. Maybe that's what he was thinking. But uh, so I ended up getting out of the guillotine. I spent a little bit of time on top of his guard, punching him, not very successfully. Um, he eventually gets up and takes me down a couple of minutes in, I think. I don't remember exactly. But yeah, and then it goes bad. I had him in the guard for a little bit. He passed my guard because he knew how. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> and, uh, and then he gets mounted on me. And then back then, grabbing the cage was legal. And we fought in a square cage. Was this the dog kennel? Yeah. So essentially, Monty got a giant dog kennel and had it welded on top of a boxing ring. Yep, he had it made, yeah. But yeah, it was a 20 by 20, just square cornered cage. Mark puts my head right in the corner and just beating the shit out of me. Every time we tried to do anything, he just reached up and grabbed the cage because it was legal. I couldn't I couldn't get him off, so. Jesus. I think I, that, that fight's on my YouTube channel if you guys want to watch it. So was my who, who was wrestling in those days? Um, it, it was a guy from Chicago. I can't remember his name, but he trained out of a out of a, a fairly reputable gym, I believe. I want to man, I don't want to throw any names out there because I'm not entirely certain who was it. Rob Hines? No, it was a Hispanic guy. I want to say Ramirez was his name, but I'm not certain. But he trained out of a gym in Chicago. Was it Roberto Ramirez? That that might have been it. Yeah, that might be it. Okay, because at this time he was going to all the UFCs. Yeah, he. I mean, the guy was at you the dance in Detroit. I mean, that's yeah. that's how old school. He's still Chicago Fight Team gym owner Roberto Ramirez. That that would actually make sense. Yeah, that. That's um, have you ever looked at opponent and just saw them and just said, you know what, you're already spending your win money and you're driving home before the fight even takes place. Yeah. So. That is what your next opponent thought when he saw you. That was Gary Myers. And <laughs> when we interviewed Gary for our, our deep dive with him, it haunts him still. He's just like, does he really put it on you? Yeah. And your biggest strength and asset is your ability to take punishment and stay calm under lots of heavy pressure. Yeah. <laughs> it, you certainly showed that in this fight. Yeah. Yeah. That, that That's one of the things I, I did best. Like I said, like, I had an advantage over most of the people in the early days of the sport because I was no stranger to getting my ass kicked. That was that like people underestimate that. Like I grew up with two older brothers that beat me mercilessly, you know, typical older brother shit when I was growing up. So yeah, I mean, the first time I got punched in the face was not when I had my first fight. It was when I was probably six years old by my 10 year old brother. 
right? So I was no stranger to getting beat up, you know? So yeah, when Gary rushed across the ring and grabbed me and threw me on my head, I was like, okay, here we go again. <laughs> I guess I have to deal with this until I find a way to beat you. That fight haunts him. Like <laughs> it haunts him. Like you can tell it. And, and you know, he's a competitor. He's, sure. Absolutely. you know, he's an alpha. You know what I mean? Okay. Those things are supposed to haunt you. Yep. It's and, funny. Um, my auntie tells the story. Of, he, he, you know, he, he's setting up the fight and he sees you somewhere, a video or something. And he's like, that kid, you know, he's not there. There's no way. I guarantee you, he can't beat me. And you talk smack to Monty, and I think that's why it sticks with yeah. Gary because he opened his big was like, "Hey, <laughs> you know, Monty saw me fight. He saw me fight uh, a couple of times. He's like, ah, I wouldn't be quite so confident. You sure about that? Yeah, that's good yeah. though. You know what I mean? That's that's sure. good. It's good. Well, it's important. You know, you have to you have to go into every fight thinking that you're un unbreakable. You're unbeatable. You the know? championship it's, mindset. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, which is a fancy way of saying completely delusional sometimes. Yes. Yeah. That's what that is. May 10th, 1997, you jump into another four-man tournament. Uh, you have Steven Goss and Jason Godsey, another yes. integrated fighting legend. Um, you're, you're fighting tough guys. Yeah, yeah. What, what was your experience with Jason Godsey? Um, he was good. Uh, you know, he was a, a, a fair bit bigger than me. I was a little bit smaller than, you know, we had a rematch in the UFC later and I was a little bit bigger. Um, but I still, you know, for the majority of my career, I was, you know, between 190 and, and 215. That's always kind of where I was for the majority of my fights. Um, and again, that was, that was a heavyweight tournament and Godsey was like 230, 235 or so. Um, and he was good. You know, and he, he was a, he was an odd character because he's one of those guys that had like, you know, he had good technique, but he just had that kind of that intangible quality where he would do things and he could get away with things that you didn't expect, you know, an odd level of strength, an odd level of flexibility, an odd level of balance and mobility, you know, whatever. Uh, and he had bits of all of those. So yeah, he was able to get on top of me and just, he just, I remember he just kept putting his forearm in my throat which by today's standards is like laughable. But back then I didn't know how to deal with it and I couldn't figure out how to get away from it. I ended up panicking and turning my back and he choked me. So. Hey, you went 642 with Godsey. He's a high school teacher yeah. today. Yeah, one of the more science teacher. <laughs> yeah. One of the more cerebral fighters. Yeah, I had also been told from people that had fought him that he's got bad habits that you wouldn't expect him to have, but he's athletic enough to get away with them. Yep. Yeah, that. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Dan Severn, June 25th, 1997, Extreme Challenge 7. Monty obviously has made the change from Quad Cities Ultimate to Extreme Challenge. He's now starting to take that show on the road as well. Obviously, incredibly advanced in regards to his forethought of mixed martial arts. Yeah. How does Dan Severn come together, and what are your thoughts about the fight? Uh, well, so back then, I mean, the sport was still relatively new. I think Severn had fought in the UFC a couple of times. I think he might, it might've been after he had won one of, one of them. I don't know. I know he won, he won one tournament and then he won the ultimate ultimate as well. Like the tournament of champions they did. And I'm not sure which one it was after, but the UFC didn't hold people to hard contracts. So Monty called Dan and goes, Hey, I'm doing this fight. Do you want to fight? Dan's a competitor. And he's like, sure. I'll go fight. <laughs> Just how it is. So same thing here. I was like, I'll fight. Yeah, it's in my hometown. So I'm ready to fight. Uh, as far as the fight itself goes, 
Um, it, it Monty was actually one of the one of the first back in the day to recognize that we need some rules and we need some structure to this. We can't just have no time limit matches, you know, with no rules. So Monty actually in the ultimate, uh, the Quad City Ultimate, he actually we were required to wear gloves. He had time limits, even though I don't know that any of the fights went the distance, but he did have time limits um, or, or rounds, I mean. And he did the same thing in uh, in this fight where he said, "Look, we don't we don't know well enough how to judge a fight. So if this fight goes the distance, it's a draw. We don't we're not going to have judges." So, you know, Dan and I fought for I think I don't know fifteen minutes, maybe maybe twenty. I can't remember. Did Did it surprise you that Dan's career kind of turned out? to be just a little left of center in certain instances like him and Brad Kohler and um, Shannon Rich. No, no, not really. Uh, because Dan was always, I don't know. Dan always struck me as somebody that like, despite the fact that he was a strong competitor and a good wrestler and, and, you know, and a, and a committed athlete, he also was a smart man. That's, that's, you know, trying to make a living. You know, so I know even even late in his career, he would take fights like, you know, I know I'm Dan Severn. You got some local guy that you think is going to make a name off, beat me up. Sure, I'll come beat him up. You know, he, he just a little bit of both. So I think he walked that line well where, you know, he was a world champion legitimately. He was a talented fighter legitimately. But also, if you want to throw him some money to go, you know, do some local fight against a local guy, he'll do that too. And I think he just, he just separated the two in his head. Like, look, this is a real fight. This is something I need to take seriously. This is something I do to make a little bit of money to feed my family. Yeah. Yeah. He, he and Travis Fulton kind of walked that same line at certain times for sure. Yep. yep. There was a guy that had a real big reputation out of California at the time and Chris Brennan <laughs> that was always looking for big fights. And yeah. August 30th, 1997, you helped train Pat Militich to fight him. Yeah. What was the temperature like going into that bout as a corner? Um, so, I mean, as a corner, it, it was nothing different than every other fight. You know, Pat always trained incredibly hard. He was in great shape. Uh, and still back then in the day, at least for me, this, you know, everything is always my perspective. I don't know what everybody else thought, but I felt like I, we had some kind of secret. Like we're training in Iowa, we're in good shape, and we know jujitsu. Like we didn't bother to think that anybody else in the world knew jujitsu, you know. And if they did, it wasn't as good as ours. And if they did, they weren't in as good a shape as us. And they, you know, so it's just we still thought we were invincible. We're gonna go in there and beat everybody. But yeah, we knew this. You know, Brennan was a was a talented fighter, talented jujitsu guy. But Pat is more well rounded, better striker, better wrestler. And as good at jujitsu. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what we felt. We're like, yeah, this is, this is what we're running with, you know? And obviously it, it proved true because he was able to out wrestle him. And, uh, you know, so. Yeah. Brennan, we, we had him on and he was just like, man, it was amazing. I fought one of the best guys in the world in his hometown. And I had that opportunity. He's yeah. like, I couldn't have been happier. I felt it was a draw going into this fight. Pat was 16 and one. His only loss was to Matt Hume. Somewhat controversial stuff on a cut, which yeah. was really a no issue thing. Yeah. Uh, Chris was four and zero. Chris says he acquiesces and said he definitely had there been judges, he would have lost that bout, rightfully so. But those two just continue running into each other. 
Cats next bout, like a month later, November 15th. Chris Brennan again at the Extreme Challenge Trials. Yep. Wins a split decision there. I thought it should have been unanimous. And um, runs into him at UFC 16 as well. Yeah. Yeah, during a tournament. In between then, though, you fight another Extreme Challenge 15, a four-man tournament, tournament Pat Ass alone and no Noe Hernandez. Yes. Hernandez with an extensive <laughs> boxing background. You know, somebody that's there was a lot of upside. A lot of people had thought that he was the next big thing. Yeah, he, that guy was a fucking destroyer. When he punched people, they just disintegrated. <laughs> like and that, John Freddy was in the audience, I believe, yeah. scouting. No, yeah, that, that was actually the fight that got me into the UFC and Noe as well. So mm-hmm. in that in that fight, um, Pat Aslone was a decent grappler. I fought him in the first round, and uh, I mean it was a good fight. I ended up, uh, I think I arm locked him. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, he went after my legs a couple of times. It was a back-and-forth fight. It was decent. Noe's first fight, he actually fought a guy named uh, Rainy Martinez. And uh, Rainy Martinez. Don Fry's team. Yep, I was yeah. going to say, yep, trained with Don Fry. Noe hit him with such a hard right hand. The, the whole fight was over in, like, eight or nine seconds. Hit him with a right hand that cut him, like, across his eyebrow, under his eye, and back this way across his face, like split his whole face open. Rainey was, from what I what I was told, Rainey was blind in that eye for like seven hours after that fight. <laughs> no, he was a fucking destroyer. You did not want to get hit by him. It was like he was throwing sledgehammers at you. He also was like one of those, like, like not like not like you're not likely to see him smiling like he was right, like yeah, one of those he was real serious like yep. hardcore dudes yep. and that, i think i mean he, that that was his personality but i think he also felt like that was required because he kind of came from a boxing background and in the boxing world you're not friends friendly with your opponents you hate not at all before and after the fight like don't be my friend i don't want to talk to you we're not buddies you know, and in MMA, it's a little looser than that. You know, a lot of times after you fight people, you go train with them and that kind of thing. And Noe was having none of that. Like he would put us, Monty would put us in two locker rooms, you know, red corner, blue corner locker rooms. And Noe was like, no, I'm not going to that locker room with them. I'll find my own section alone with my team. I'm not, I'm not sharing a locker room with anybody, you know? So, yeah. yeah so Noe, that. his next bout is Chuck Liddell. I mean, yeah. that's how impressed yeah. John Peretti was with him. And, um, were you kind of surprised at that? No. Uh, so, actually, that was – he fought Chuck because I, I was actually supposed to fight Chuck on that card. That's the card when I fought Frank Shamrock. Okay, right. So, I was originally going to fight Chuck, uh, I, I, you know, as an alternate for the tournament with uh, Dan Henderson, Alan Goez, um, Carlos Newton, and Bob Gilstrap. Yep. So, I was supposed to fight yeah, as an alternate against Chuck in that fight. And then at the last minute – they decided that they wanted to do the whole night of champions thing. We talked about that last time I was on, didn't we? Yeah. 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 So you but, got pulled to do the fight. Yeah. Yeah. So I got pulled out of the fight with Chuck to fight Frank on that show. And so they decided to pull Noe in to fight Chuck. Cause that's the fight that John had just seen. So. So that's May 15th, 1998 UFC 17. And um, I think Noe Hernandez, man. Like, it's just one of those forgotten names, like you would, yeah. you had described. Just a heck of a puncher. And yeah. what an impression. How did that fight go between teams? I know you won by a decision. Yeah, I won by decision because I, I was able to take him down and control him. Um, 
it, it wasn't a super dominant win. Like, I mean, his takedown defense wasn't great. And I was 1000% focused on taking him down. <laughs> so I was not going to stand up with him at all. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I was able to take him down and control position a bit and came close to a couple of submissions, nothing spectacular, but uh, I mean, you know, not, uh, not, not a great performance because I, you know, trying to control him and he was dangerous. So I remember at one point I was in his guard and I just, you know, my head on his chest and he hit me like this. And I could have sworn that somebody was standing up next to me, kicking me. <laughs> really? Dude, he hit so hard. Ridiculous power. Holy cow. Was UFC 16, the four-man tournament Pet Militich fought in, it was supposed to crown the first 175 champion. Was that uh, your first UFC that you had ever attended? Possibly. I'd, I'd have to double check. I don't really remember the numbers and names. The first one was with uh, when he fought uh, Mikey Burnett, Townsend Saunders. That tournament is that the one you talked about? That's it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's yeah. That's I think that was it. Yeah. Okay, so you you go from February twenty seventh in front of John Peretti. A few weeks later, March thirteenth, you've seen him again. Get a little FaceTime. That's super important. Um, Militich beats Townsend Saunders, who is an absolute savage by split decision. Yeah. Uh, shoulder chokes Chris Brennan. Mikey Burnett hurts his hand. There's no finals, so it gets pushed to a future event. Yeah. Um, the main event, Frank Shamrock, Igor Zinoviev. Did you interact with Zinoviev at all? Um, not at that point, but he actually, uh, him and John, uh, uh, John Lewis came to Omaha and did a seminar for me, uh, or rather a seminar at a gym where I was at. And I got to meet him a little bit then. He's a really nice guy. Is it Obia was? Yeah. Very quiet, but yeah, nice guy. Future wow. Jeffrey Epstein bodyguard. I might add, Igor Zinoviev. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 He, um, used to like be his driver in Florida. Huh. It's interesting oh, where people yeah. wind up in life. Yeah. UFC yeah. 17, Frank Shamrock, you make your UFC debut and they immediately put you into a world title fight. Is that a little hard to adjust to? Um, no, not really. I think for me, it was actually easier because like, I knew that I was being pulled in. Like I, I knew the structure of the show. They, they were getting ready to do this night of champions thing where they were just going to do a pay-per-view event and they were just going to show a bunch of old title fights. And I knew that they wanted one new one. They, they, they wanted one new fight to entice people to actually buy the event. Nobody's going to buy a, a, a pay-per-view of reruns. Um, so I kind of knew that they were setting me up as a sacrificial lamb. So I, th my expectations were very low. I knew nobody, nobody knew, nobody thought I was going to win. Nobody cared. Um, and not only that, but he had just fought Kevin Jackson and Igor Zinoviev and beat them both in like 30 seconds. And I knew that there's nobody going to beat me in 30 seconds. So like, I mean, the, the, the pressure was really low for me because I'm like, they don't expect me to win. I know I can last longer than those guys and those guys are world champions. So like, whatever, let's go see what it goes. So, I mean, no, there really wasn't a ton of pressure for me. Kind of, kind of weird, but yeah. <laughs> You know, in that fight, you, you had mentioned that uh, Pat had to, well, I mean, you hear Pat in the corner yelling yeah. at you, like, take the fight, take, you know, it's your turn, it's your turn. Yeah. Was there some mental adjustment, at least, during oh, the bout? 
Absolutely. Because I was still, I'm fighting Frank Shamrock, right? This guy's destroyer of worlds. He just beat Kevin Jackson, Igor Zinoviev in 30 seconds. You know, so I, you know, I, the fight starts, he throws a kick, I grab his leg, I scoop him up and dump him on his head. And then I jump inside him. I'm like, okay, that was a little bit of luck. He didn't expect it. This is Frank Shamrock. Any minute, he's going to turn it on and he's going to beat me. Right? And then I, I slide to the mount and I'm like, okay, he didn't see that coming. He's He's letting me do it. This is Frank Shamrock. Any minute, he's going to turn it on, and I'm going to lose. Fast forward 15 minutes, and I'm still going, okay, any minute, he's going to turn it on, and I'm going to lose somehow. And I just, I could never get in gear and, and convince myself, no, I am better than this guy. I can beat him. It's not luck. It's not chance. He's not slipping. I'm better than him. And I just, I could never get in, get in gear mentally and convince myself that I can beat him. Even after winning the entire fight, I just was still like, man, I'm, I'm just getting lucky over and over and over. He's, he's, he's not paying attention. He's, he's dropping the ball. He's, he's letting me do it. I just kept making excuses for why I was doing so well. Cause I couldn't, I just couldn't convince myself that I was better than him. That's wild. <laughs> like that's shocking to us. Yeah. When you hear something like that. There's a legendary promoter in the regional Iowa scene, Chad Mason. Oh yeah. At one point, uh, there was a picture, a famous picture taken of you choking him out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what precipitated that? Uh, so Chad and I were real good friends for a long time. I, I actually was a bit of a catalyst for him coming into the, the promoting scene. Um, we trained together for quite a while. Uh, actually, if I remember correctly, he was one of the people that introduced me to John Lewis. He had been out to Vegas and trained with him some and knew him and, uh, I don't remember exactly the details, but he might've had a hand in helping bring that seminar there, but Chad was just a great talker and uh, he could basically talk anybody into anything. And so obviously it, it, he excelled at promoting fights. Um, he was one of the first ones to do kind of the weekly, the weekly bar fight thing where just locals can come up and give it a try. It's you know, a so toad holler fights. Yep. Yep. The problem is again, back in the day, you know, the sport was really new and everybody was infatuated with it. So there was a lot of money to be made. And Chad kind of leaned into the dark side a little bit and started taking advantage of people and, and not being great with his finances and just, you know, kind of went off the deep end a little bit, kind of burned a lot of bridges, burned a lot of people. Um, he has since corrected course and is back on track. Um, I, I spoke to him just a couple of, couple of weeks ago now. Uh, and he is actually, uh, he's a nurse, he's a registered nurse, and he's in the Ukraine helping the war effort over there. Yeah. Really? Like completely turned his life around, straightened everything out, and is, is back on track and doing good things. And sometimes people hit stumbling blocks. Yep. You know, what are you going to do? What I mean, you thing, do? When, you're, when you're a young kid in the middle of this hurricane of MMA and you're making $10,000 a month cash doing fights, it's pretty hard to not, not get drawn into that, you know, and start pushing a little bit more. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Mistakes and, uh, but yeah, I mean, he's, He's corrected everything now, as far as I know, and he's doing well. Well, good for him. Yeah. What was it like going to Brazil and fighting Ebenezer Braga at Terrible. UFC 17 and a half? It was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Brazil is obviously the mecca of fighting. Uh, so, you know, we were all pretty pumped to go to Brazil. It was in Sao Paulo, which is not Rio, no. not the resort city. It's the big dirty scary industrial complex city 
uh, you know, they pick us up at the airport and on the bus ride to the hotel, we had to stop and wait for a homeless guy that decided to drop his pants and take a piss right in the middle of the street. And just the bus just had to stop and wait for him. <laughs> they didn't so, have yeah, to, that, but they did. They chose to. Yeah. Well, he was like, I'm not moving. I'm taking a piss here. You're just going to wait for me. <laughs> so, yeah, it was terrible. I, I just hid in my hotel the whole time until they took us to the fight. Um, Braga was an incredibly challenging opponent. You know, that was, you know, yeah. He was, well, some would argue he was top three in the world at this time. Yeah, I could see that. He had you know. a lot of tough guys. Like, there was, for me, it seemed like, this is going to sound really bad, but it, it it seemed to me like what we were doing in the U.S. was like little kids playing with their father's toys, pretending to be fighters. Down in Brazil, they're doing it for real. Yeah. Down in Brazil, they're doing head kicks and stomps, and I mean, they're they're fucking each other up. Those guys are fighting. We're pretending to fight. And so when I went down there, that's kind of how it felt. Like I'm fighting this guy that is a fighter. Yeah, when you were about as serious, you're about as serious and advanced a student of this game as the states had at that time. Yeah, and I'm like, and, okay, this and, is. And you ran into just a hard, hard man, you know. Yeah, and I that's mean? really what it was. I mean, he was he was a talented fighter, but I don't know that he was much more skilled than I was. But he was harder than I was, and he was more committed to winning a fight than I was, and I could tell right away. It, like, it was, was almost I, like. Yeah. People, some people were fighting for sport. Braga yeah. was like fighting to save his family. Exactly. And that's that that bled into the fight. Absolutely. Yeah. It's different. Yeah, very much. You so. watch those early Braga fights, especially him with Kevin Randleman. Yep. It's and Brandon Lee Hinkle. It's yeah. it's just that's a guy fighting for his life. Yeah. Not for sport. Yeah, it's different. Well, so uh I, I this I don't know how many people know this, probably maybe none. But I was originally scheduled to fight Vanderlei Silva on that card. Really? Yeah. They changed it. Uh, I don't know how far out, uh, a month or whatever. Uh, and they had Vanderlei fight Belford instead. And so they, I ended up fighting Braga. But I was originally scheduled to fight Vanderlei Silva. Okay, so it's pretty much the same, you know, more or less the same thing. It, it, it was going to be a rough, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I those, those guys are those, like you said, those guys are fighting to survive. And up in America, we're fighting because it's fun to fight. You brought up Wanderlei Silva. You fought Peter Belfort. At this time, you know, was, I'm sitting behind a, a freaking computer. I, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but at this time, Peter Belfort was going through a lot of mental issues in regards to confidence. At least that was the rumor behind the scenes. Sure. Did Pat have to go into the locker room and give Peter Belfort a pep talk prior to Wanderlei? <sighs> Honestly, maybe I don't know. I, I I I didn't see it. I don't know if it happened. It's possible. I, I, That's the rumor. Yeah, and I, you know, people that are kind of questioning, you know, it's Peter Belfort. No way. Look at his fight with Joe Charles. It's yeah. an obvious work. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it was a so, confidence Belfort builder. For jungle with confidence issues. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, well, and it's in part. Pat Militic, your coach, brings home the belt against Mikey Burnett. Um, Kind of a lackluster performance uh, on both of their sides. Yeah. Um, Pat took a lot of criticism at this point due to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's they, they kind of nullified each other. You know, I mean, I think Mikey Burnett was um, maybe a little bit stronger, a little bit more powerful 
Uh, maybe a little bit better wrestling. Pat had a little more polish in his kickboxing <laughs> and was better on the ground. But really what it boiled down to is their wrestling kind of nullified each other. And neither one of them was really willing to, to, to take a big risk and step outside and do something drastic. You know, that fight was mostly a little bit of boxing with a lot of clinch work, you know? So, but yeah, they just, neither one of them really wanted to take a big risk. So it ended up being, yeah, kind of a, kind of a boring fight. After that bout, Pat calls out Romina Sato, who one of Miguel's top five favorites of all time. And it's almost as if the UFC, they're putting pressure on him to either retire and hang it up. But if you look at Pat's performances after he loses to Newton, they're his best performances of his career, but he's walking around almost mangled. Like you can see he's got like his, his gait when he walks is off because he's obviously dealing with some issues, but he's finishing guys and super exciting. Yeah. Well, so I, I don't, I don't know if Pat told you guys this, but when he was little, he broke his back when he was sledding. Like little yeah. kids set up a ramp in the snow and went off a huge jump and he landed so hard that he broke his back. So yeah, that's why he walks that way. He's had problems with his back and his neck his entire life. So he's always kind of got that hunched over that, uh, you know, that posture. Yeah, he broke his back. So, yeah, he's he always dealt with that. Um, for the most part, it didn't bother him. But certainly when you get warmed up and loosened up for a fight, it, it shows less. But, yeah, when you're just walking around, it's, yeah. Like, but, but, but Pat, at this point, though, was really starting to suck wind at the weigh-ins. Yeah. You know, as you get a little older, it gets harder and harder to cut weight. Yeah. So do you think that affected him at the, at the end? You know, oh for sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say that was one hundred percent what it was because he trained just as hard. He was just as focused on everything else. But as you get a little older, your body is not as willing to put up with that, and it just it hurts more and it takes longer. And it's just that's just how it goes. You know, man, the mark that Pat Militich has met, left on the mixed martial arts world will never be matched. Yeah, I mean that guy is. I mean, he's, he's one of the Mount Rushmore, and yeah, in my opinion. I, I agree. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people, as the sport progresses, everybody always wants to compare, you know, modern-day athletes to old athletes. But, you know, nobody thinks that, you know, the 1950s football players could come and, and win the, the Super Bowl now, right? But you have to compare them for what it was back in the day, right? When, when nobody really knew what was going on, everybody was kind of stumbling through the dark trying to find their way. And Pat was able to do what he did. Yeah, that that absolutely deserves recognition. Um, and that's, yeah, that's something that will never be surpassed because now everybody can look at what we did back then and use it as a, as a foundational guide to how to, how to, how to move forward. And, and let us not forget, like Pat in our interview with him said, you know, at this point in time, he had a letter in his sock drawer with a gun. And essentially he said, if I didn't win the UFC championship, I was going to kill myself. It wouldn't, it wouldn't I mean, surprise me. I mean, he was think about that. And like, you can say whatever it is you want about Pat Militucci's political views. Guy's not a bullshitter when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Miguel, he fights for you at hook and shoot against Jerome Smith. <laughs> yes. This is a Do great you want to fight. Elaborate on that before I move on. Miguel? 
Uh, what do you want to know? Jerome Smith once stole Dave Minet's car. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, Jerome Smith was also Frank Mir's debut for me. So he's a big military kid. He used to train with John Rankin. Um, 230 strong. And if he wanted to fight, you know, Horn showed up at the show took the fight and this guy was much bigger and stuff like that. That that fight was made day before the show. I think it may have even actually been the day of the show. That's and, a lot uh, of fight back then. And and the funny one of the things I remember of that is Horn got popped because he was he was walking around with a spoon like hold you know keeping the swelling down on his face after the fight. Happy as shit. Smiling yeah. but with holding the spoon to his face because he got well, popped one and, and he taught he taught Jerome a little thing about technique that you know, Jerome still remembers. I think. So it's funny. I I, I still tell people about that fight because because you're right. So you know you guys are familiar with jujitsu, right? And it's 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 kind of like the stereotypical jujitsu thing is I'm going to grab a clinch. I'm going to slide to your back. If you decide to grab me in a headlock, it's no big deal because I can deal with that, right? You guys kind of know the the yeah. self defense mantra, right? And so I tell people this all the time. So I'm, you know, when I, I you know, I run a, a program for cops and we work them through this. And I tell people, like, look, when you slide to the back, just tuck your head down a little bit. The guy might grab you and try to give you a little noogie and hit you a little bit. Not gonna be, be a big deal. Except for this one time, I had a fight where a guy landed one punch on me, and it was that fight with Smith. He grabbed me in a headlock, cracked me one time, one punch. And then I take him down, mount him, and finish him. And that one punch swelled my eye completely shut instantly. Like literally like this. Grab me in the head like one punch. Eye swelled completely shut. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was a big, strong dude. Yes, he was. <laughs> so you're about to embark on a legendary run that boggles my mind. I have, I, I can't believe what takes place in January of, of, of 99. But prior to that, you make your first trip to Japan and Pancrase, uh, Yamamiya Kaichiro. Yep. How was your experience in Japan as compared to Brazil and the United States, the audience, the fanfare? Uh, Japan was awesome. Anybody that's ever fought in Japan will probably tell you the same thing. I love fighting there. The fans are awesome. Um, they, they, they have so much more respect for the athletes that fight for them than you see anywhere else. Uh, you know, in a, in a fight in Japan, typically you will see lines of people after the fight lining up for autographs with the fighters, right? And the line for autographs for the guy that loses is as big as the guy that won. It's, it's incredible because in Japan, like in America, we are obsessed with winners and rightly so. I mean, competition and, and winning and success are important, of course. but when it comes to fighting or really any sporting endeavor, like, like, why am I watching this fight? I'm watching this fight because I want to be entertained by the fight. Did the guy that loses that fight play a part in how much I'm entertained? Absolutely yeah. he did, right? So he deserves just as much respect from me because he put up a good fight. You know, he was willing to go in there and fight and willing to entertain me. And that's the way the Japanese fans have always looked at. It. Yes, people like winners. They like winners a little bit more, but... Like they look at fighters as like, you're an athlete, you're willing to go into the cage or the ring to entertain me. And you're willing to risk bodily harm to entertain me. And because of that, I love you. So they, they just, that's how they treat the sport over there. 
They don't care much if you're a winner or a loser. The fact that you're an athlete and you're willing to do what you do for the entertainment of the crowd is all they care about. Jesse, let me let me let me ask you. We talked a little bit about your Brazil experience. I was actually with you at that show in Brazil, the UFC Brazil, and Sao Paulo is in t- like you're a Midwest guy. Was that your first trip overseas? Like, so that's intimidating because let me tell you, we stayed at a Holiday Inn downtown, so it wasn't like you know one of the like Grand Malias or like one of the big five star hotels. It was just right. a straight Holiday Inn downtown. Yeah. You know. You walked out and every other person on the street was, you know, a hooker, <laughs> basically. Uh, and the and, others were homeless. <laughs> yeah, and, or, and homeless. We were in yeah. a downtown scenario like that with, like, strip joints and things. You know, Tank Abbott leaving to go drink and, you know, it was yeah. mayhem. My wife came with me at the time and she didn't want to go to the show. She said, I'm going to stay in the hotel. Thank you. Yeah. You know, she was intimidated, too. I, you know... I speak Spanish. I wasn't that scared. I knew Sergio, but she was worried. And it was so. Take all that. Now you're just 25 million people, but Tokyo is also 25 million people. And yeah. Tokyo is completely different. You don't yep. feel intimidated totally at different. all. Yeah. I, I, we, we like, you know, I went to Japan a bunch of times because I fought in rings a bunch and the Pancrase show and stuff. By the end, like, I would walk out of the hotel and find my way to the subway and just ask questions. And I'd go all over Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, way braver. Like, I don't care. I'll figure I'll figure it out. I'll find my way back. Everybody will help me. You know, people are pretty friendly and they'll they'll kind of give you directions as best they can. So yeah, totally different vibe there. I, I always tell the story in Tokyo one time. We went out after the show, partied a little bit. The owner of the pancreas put me in a cab and said, take him to the hotel. I passed out in the cab. <laughs> I woke up, I woke up in the cab. The cab sat in front of my hotel for half an hour, put the heat on. So I can rest. I don't think I would have gotten that treatment in Sao Paulo. <laughs> and, that, and that doesn't surprise me either. That's just that's just the culture over there. Super friendly, super, super accommodating. Does that make it easier to fight there though? Like, you know, oh yeah. Like, like, so yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it's way better. You're you're my you're muted again, Mike. Do you think the fight should have been a draw? Uh which one? With uh with Yamamiya. Yamamiya? Um, yeah, probably. I didn't fight real well in that fight. So that was Pancrase's uh, attempt to go back to like true NHB MMA. So headbutts, elbows, all that stuff was legal again. And so, uh, I don't know. I just, I didn't didn't fight real well. You know, I was nervous that I, I don't know why, but I was nervous that if I got hit with an elbow or a headbutt that I might get cut and I don't want to lose by cut. So, I mean, I fought pretty conservatively. So, yeah, I mean, a, a, I think a draw is fair. It really was a pretty uneventful fight. Okay. Your January of 1999, we're going to start it at December 31st, 1998 at New Year's Eve knockout, Atlanta, Georgia, yeah. against Nick Starks. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, what this man accomplished in January, including this, is compromised what most careers are. <laughs> So Nick Starks, New Year's Eve knockout. You're not a big partier, are you? No. Do you smoke weed? No. Do you drink? A little bit. Not much. Huh. I play video no, games no, no. and I hang out with my dog. <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I can vouch for that, man. Take, you know, in Indiana, we do the shows, and Jeremy was like, you know, after the shows, 
happy, you know, but sitting around talking, other people might be drinking. Jeremy didn't need any of that stuff. And that's that's one of the things we talked about earlier that I wanted to give him credit for is the amount that he puts in to fight. Like a lot of people after the show, they go party and that's yeah. a, a, a slide that he never took. He stayed focused. Hey, I got to be at the gym tomorrow, stuff like that. It shows, you know, in the long run. So, uh, yeah, more power to him. Thank you. So arm triangle, Nick Starks, 521. January 8th, Pat Militich is at UFC 18th fighting Macacao. And you're not there because you're in Quebec at the IFC tournament, format tournament, the very next day, January 9th. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot going on with the IFC. Yeah. <laughs> at this point. Yeah, there was. Let's hear your, your version before I add my two well, cents. I mean, it just there was a there was a few different people at the helm there, and they they would kind of run their own shows individually, all under the IFC banner. There was a lot of unorganized things going on, a lot of maybe not quite honest things going on. I don't really know all the details. I don't know what's going on, but they were just flying by the seat of their pants, trying to throw shit together. So, <laughs> so Buddy Albin was the promoter. Yeah. What was your impression of him? Uh, I don't, I don't know that I never really met him much. I never really had a whole lot to do with that. So say hi, shake hands, go back to my hotel room, that kind of thing. It's, did you see him at the hotel bar often? Uh, maybe. I mean, I didn't go to the bar. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, that was a rumor behind him. Howard Petchler as well. It's a four-man tournament. Just so people at home can understand, the, the IFC, the early IFCs, you will see their mat laid out and you'll have like – black squares painted on the mat. And the reason is because Buddy Elvin had ultimate fighting on it and the UFC uh -huh. had to send him legal work before the event in order to paint it over. He did and then continued to use the mat another three or four times. It's like he didn't, yeah. it didn't bother him that there was these giant black squares on the mat. <laughs> Jeremy talks about them flying by the seat of their pants. Was Monty with you at this show or was he with uh Pat? No, I don't think so. So this is back when I started traveling with Travis Fulton a lot because I basically told him, I go, look, man, you've got all kinds of contacts. If you've got a fight somewhere, get me a fight on that card. So Travis and I just, you know, traveled a lot to fights. Yeah, so. Monty tells a story about why I was wondering if it was that show, but Monty tells a story about being out with the IFC guys after an IFC show and everybody's feeling good at the show. And, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, you know, the bill comes for dinner and nobody, you know, Monty actually had to fucking pay the bill because these oh, guys didn't even have the money for the dinner. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's a Monty story about it. So talk about yeah. flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you, uh, at the IFC tournament, you beat Rene Tremblay and Josh Dixon, Triangle and Armbar. Yeah. That's January 9th. January 20th, Extreme Boxing in Davenport. You fight Mike Walker. I don't remember that one. Mike Walker, who's that one? You win by oh, arm I triangle. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. So there's that's where like my my record online has got about, I don't know, it's got 30 or 40 fights that are missing. Because that's that's what it was. I mean, I fought every single weekend through 99 and into, into 2000. I just, I fought as often as I could. You know, I mean, Miguel will tell you, like, everybody that had a little bit of floor space was trying to promote a fight. Everybody wanted to fight. Everybody wanted to watch fights. 
there were really no commissions. So, I mean, hook and shoot was one of the, one of the main promotions there that was doing things right. But anybody with two fence panels would put them together and, and throw together fights. So there are tons of fights that I don't even remember the name of the opponent. I don't remember the name of the promoter. No, let, let me okay. ask you something, Jeremy. You know, and this is with respect because I, I know at this point, were you so far ahead of the curve against some of those guys on the B circuit that you were kind of, you know, hey, I'm going to go collect my 400 bucks for that because, you know, I should get paid more, but it's 400 easy bucks. So I'm just yeah. going to grab it. Is that a little bit of the motivation or were you just drinking I mean, like, ah, Looking back, I can say that, but honestly, I don't really know what my mentality was then. I mean, I, I wasn't working because I was fighting all the time and I was, you know, just, it, you know, I tell people this when I, when I moved to Iowa, uh, it, you know, that run started in 99 and I planned to get a job and just continue fighting because I, it was fun to fight. Um, but then, you know, I connected with Travis and he's, he just found me fights every single weekend. And so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I got this fight this weekend. I'll, I'll find a job when I get back. And then, oh, there's another fight and another fight and another fight. And a few months down the road, like, it turns out I don't need a job because I'm making five, four or 500 bucks a fight every weekend. So I'm paying my bills. And I guess now I'm a professional fighter. So yeah, you're too busy, too yeah, busy fighting then to go look for a job. Yeah. And it, it and, you know, and it never was a conscious decision to say, okay, now I'm a pro. It was just, I'm going to keep fighting because I love it. I'm making enough money to pay my bills and I get to go to the gym every day and fight every weekend. So, but yeah, there were certainly moments where I was like, look, I'm just, I'm loving my life. I train all the time. I travel on the weekends. I go fight, I get paid. Um, I don't know that I consciously ever said, you know, this is an easy fight. I'm just going to go get paid, but I'm sure, I mean, I, you know, I had a long run there where I did really well. So I'm sure at one point I was thinking, Hey, I'm, I'm unbeatable. I'm unstoppable. I'm just, a, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this. So. So that was January 20th, January 30th, hook and shoot. Miguel, you have me back in Evansville against a pretty tough Ken Parr. Yeah. I remember Ken. Ken was tough. He was a military guy. guy. Yeah. Yep. Russian guy Blonde was buzz cut. Yep. Uh, so. You know, I, I got, this is one of those matches I think where, <laughs> hey, you know, the guy could be game and stuff. Wrestler would choose. You know, he's a few yeah. years behind Jeremy at this point. Yeah. And, and and it shows. But that's so you would think that might wind up Jeremy's January. That is not true. He fights another fight January 31st against uh, Steve Berger. A, and in, man, in my opinion, a Hall of Fame fighter. Yeah. Steve Berger with Brian Mann and Belleville, Illinois, submission fighting championships. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah this is spectacular. The, the, that show was... Was that open hand? Was that yeah. the deal? Okay, I think you so could, yeah. uh, they use kind of rings rules. So I think you could punch the body, but not on the ground. Or you can't punch the head on the ground. So okay, yeah, they had, they had some type of weird rules that made it sort of not MMA, but yeah. the, the promoter was prolific. He had a couple of guys like Jermaine Andre that actually went to the UFC and stuff that he was building. And, you know, he, he was smart enough to keep, Jermaine away from Jeremy <laughs> and that sort of stuff, you know, building them up and stuff. But that show was the kind of thing where your buddy Travis Fulton knocked the guy out in the main event. Yeah. And shortly afterwards, over the mic, they're like, Is there a doctor in the house? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. like, no doctors, no nothing. They're trying yeah. to 
find help. They thought the guy swallowed his mouthpiece until they found it like in the 10th row or whatever. Yeah. So it was well, that, that's well, the way those fights were. Yeah, like Matt guy- was trying to open open his he had clenched up his teeth and he was he used a big pen to try to <laughs> open his I remember that scene going on. It's like wow, you know, it's like at least in hook and shoe, we, we do a little better than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that area was cursed for promoters. Like Brian Madden, a former pro wrestler, you know, he has an early death. The guy that takes his place, Randy Greenman, uh, is, you know, we, if you listen to our Steve Berger interview, we, we break what happened to him. He wound up in seven different places at the same time, you know, when, oh, wow. with dealing with the bikers, you know, and he was, you know, we're dealing with this Sakiki Barra stuff with Ryzen being canceled. I firmly stand by when there's nefarious money involved in mixed martial arts, the sport's in a good place. That's where you get the best fights. <laughs> yeah. Just my personal opinion. When, the, when there's just money flowing that freely, people are willing to do some crazy fights for it. Greenman was washing money through the RSF and Belleville and had some, I mean, he had Shirk Parisian one and two, you know, Lytle Spratt. You know, I'm in. Yeah. So um, after that, you get the call back up. I mean, incredible January run. You fight Chuck Liddell at UFC 19 at 200 pounds. Lydell at this time is managed by Dana White. Yeah. So this was, I mean, it was just kind of the fight that I had expected back when I fought Frank. So, you know, although now this one, this one was a little bit frustrating. I mean, Chuck was still pretty new on the ground, but I was still, you know, I mean, I was very experienced. Obviously I had a, you know, I had a, I don't know, I want to say 20 fights or something like that. Uh, and I felt way more comfortable, um, but still I was struggling to take him down. And I remember at one point in the, in the fight thinking like, like, God damn it. Am I just cursed? I can't win a fight in the UFC. I had fought Frank and lost. I'd fought Braga and lost, but every other fight I fought outside of the UFC, I beat everybody. And I'm thinking, God damn it. I'm just cursed. I cannot win in the UFC. Uh, and then I eventually I was able to drag him to the ground and choke him. But yeah, I remember that going through my head going, what, what is this? So, yeah. Do I remember that that correctly? It was like an arm triangle. He was yep. on top of you, and yeah, so the was, bends, Yeah, and he doesn't get up. Yep. Yeah. So I was I was driving through from a half guard, trying to pass his guard, and I had kind of that head and arm position. And right as I drove through, he turned over into my guard. So I just I squeezed as hard as I could. I knew the round was coming close, and I knew that he was just going to try to wait it out. He wasn't going to tap. And so I knew my only chance was to put him to sleep. Uh, and I squeezed as hard as I possibly could. The bell rings, John stops. I let go and I look over cause his head's like right here. Right. I look over and his eyes are open and he's drooling. And I was like, Oh, he's out. <laughs> he's I thought he was out for a minute and you, you he hear Pat Militich, you hear Pat Militich yelling to you. Yeah. You keep it on. He's going to yeah. go out. Yeah. I, yeah. I think he might've been out for 30 seconds or so. Because you can see his, his leg kind of his leg kind of slides and goes limp a little bit, but it, you know we were just sitting there. I'm squeezing. He's sitting there. We're waiting for the round to end, so nobody was expecting him to move. So the fact that he was still didn't raise any red flags. So man, that was, that was a scary. Definitive win, though. <laughs> Thankfully, my first win in the UFC. <laughs> yeah, you got the monkey off your back. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not cursed. Maybe. 
I'm just fighting higher quality uh, opposition in the UFC. Maybe that's why I'm having a little more trouble. <laughs> you also went for a heel hook in that fight. I'd yep. never seen you do that up until this point. Was that inspired by what took place with Ken, with Frank Shamrock? Uh, no, honestly, it was just because I was having such a hard time taking him down. I really, I've never been a big fan of leg locks. I think they're, they're hard to pull off in, in yeah. fights. And then he puts you in a bad spot. You know, there's a lot of downside to him. So I just never been a big fan of him, but I was just having such a hard time getting him to the ground that I was like, fuck it, I'll go after whatever I can get. You know, at the end of the day, with Chuck's legacy, you know, about to be exploding and, and, and what he became, is that your biggest win? Like, what, what, what do you like? Like, big at that point or of all? Yeah, like, or in your career, like, put it in perspective for me. Because, I mean, it's pretty big. That's a pretty big win. Chuck it's a huge win. You know, you know, kind of like we spoke earlier, I think it's, it's, uh, it's more important to look at, I mean, you got to rate it based on what it was at the time. You know, at the time, Chuck didn't really know much about submissions. He was a good wrestler and a good kickboxer, but he didn't really know much on the ground. So, I mean, yes, Chuck is Chuck. And he went on to be, you know, an icon in the sport. But back then, that was just a kickboxer with some wrestling. He's a very, very different fighter. Had I won our second fight, I would say that would be, you know, that would be an iconic win. But to beat him before he knew anything, like, eh. okay, he was a sure. tough guy, you know. But I, I don't know that I would put that much stock into that. Man, dude, it's, it's all you do, Jeremy. It's all you do. Man, Miguel, it's a phenomenal win. Incredible. Chuck was at slow kickboxing at the time, you know, out of San Luis Obispo. Dude, I think you've got a championship mindset, and I think you always like. Let's just say you bought a car for five hundred dollars. You would tell somebody, "Oh, it only cost me three fifty. You've got a a strange way of just kind of looking at your own career. Well, I, I just I've always felt that I, I am very fortunate to have led and walked the path that I have. The sport has given me an amazing life and I've had a chance to travel the world and meet amazing people and basically just do what I want all day long, every day. I train and fight and teach and it's what I love to do. And so I just feel really fortunate to, to, to have this life and it's because of the sport. So it's hard for me to look at it, look at it any other way. Like I'm lucky. <laughs> I'm fortunate. Yes. I worked hard. Yes. I had some talent, but I mean, how many other people have been in my position that were talented, that were willing to work hard, that did not get to do what I did? I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. Um, you, you say you're lucky. In 1999, you fought 21 times and you only lost once. <laughs> I had some talent. <laughs> okay. I, I would prefer to use that word rather than luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that, like, certainly... Oh, oh. It, your it talent took, gave it, you it took, it took skill... To win those fights. Yes, I, I had talent, certainly. And I worked really hard. But, like, if you were to take the skill level that I had now and put them into somebody now, e even if you were to, like, <clears throat> extrapolate that for somebody at that level today, they couldn't do what I did then. Because the regulation and the promotions and, you know, the money, it's not there. I was able to fight for $400 a fight and make a living on it fighting every weekend that's not legal now you know th there's not as many promotions now so you know? wait hold up Jeremy I gotta interrupt Miguel <laughs> we talk about the next superstar 
the next Conor McGregor, the next Ronda Rousey. You, you hear that often. Why is we've never heard the next Jeremy Horn? Because that that it can't exist anymore. You can't find there. The sport would not allow a guy to fight every single weekend for a year and a half straight. Winning or losing is irrelevant. It's you can't do that anymore. It's There's nuts. not that many promotions. There's not you know and the the skill level of fuck. The skill level of our amateurs today would have destroyed me back then. Right. I mean, yeah. just, but you know, that's how the sport progresses, but that's the thing. So now there's so much more regulation. It just, and that's what I mean when I say I'm lucky, like I got dropped into the sport at the right time that my skill set led me to that, but you couldn't do that. Now you couldn't have 40 fights in one year. Now. You could what was your relationship? just take a little fraud. You got to commit a little fraud. <laughs> <laughs> What was like, what was your dealings with in early Dana White? Obviously you had met him at that bout. Yeah. Uh, it, I don't know. I mean, I've always had a, a different perspective on Dana than other people. Um, he's always been, been friendly to me, always been good to me. Um, he has always struck me as the kind of guy like, yeah, he's a New Yorker. Uh, and he's just kind of got that perspective. Like, I'm going to tell you exactly what's on my mind. I don't care what you think. This is my opinion. If you don't like it, piss off, you know? And yes, people have criticized him for some of the things he's done in the UFC, but you know, I can't comment on that. That's, that's a harsh business life. And maybe some of those decisions are made rashly. Maybe not. I don't know. He's always seemed pretty good to me. And he's, he's, uh, he's always been pretty good to me. Um, And he's, he's been instrumental in building the sport that I've built my life around. So that's kind of, there's good and bad, you know, people sure. like to highlight the bad, but the reality of the situation is yeah. I, the three of us wouldn't be connected right now. If it weren't Absolutely. Forever. You know, yeah. and every, every time I've been in a UFC, even after I was done fighting in the UFC, you know, I was still coaching a few guys and cornering a few guys and, and he had always made it a point to come over and say hi and chat with me for a few minutes. He didn't have to do that, you know, but he always did come say hi. And, you know, he respects the old guard. I think so. Yeah. So, but yeah, my relationship with him has always been good. What about Joe Silva? Same. I, I really didn't have a whole lot to do with Joe. I met him and say hi to him here and there, but really Monty dealt with him more. Cause that was more like, you know, discussing fights, you know, working out the logistics and, and uh, the details of fights. So always friendly with Joe, but I didn't really have a whole lot of interaction with him. Did you know, when did you start noticing the animosity between Dana and Monty? Well, that was, that was always there. I think it all kind of started with Jens when, you know, when, cause Monty was pretty shrewd when it came to being a manager, man, he was, he was on point and he would work hard and you know, he, he never did anything. Yeah. He never did anything underhanded, but he would like push the boundaries and he would fight hard for his, his fighters. Um, and so uh, I think he writes about it in his book. I don't know if you guys have spoken to Monty, but basically the, the whole kind of fiasco with, with re-signing Jens on his contract when he was the champ, I think that's really what burned Dana out for Monty because Monty was, you know, basically standing up for his client and Dana didn't like that. But I mean, I can't blame him because Monty kind of, you know, you know, Monty, Monty pulled the rug out from under him, so to speak, and, and had him over a barrel and, and used and pushed it for every advantage he could get. And, and you know, even if it's honest but harsh negotiation, people feel like they're getting screwed over. 
Yeah. Hey, so you brought you brought up Jens, and uh, you're we're in, in you're talking about your running. When does Jens and like Matt Hughes become part of that Militich team and and get added to the mix in there? How how does that come about? Um, you know, I'd have to check the timeline and actually look at when their fights were to see, but it was it was pretty quickly after. I mean, I was one of the first that that moved to train with Iowa, and within maybe. A few months to a year, I think Pat or uh, Matt and Jens were there, and then a couple of years after that, I don't know, it wasn't even that long. Maybe a year after that, Tim was there. I was only in Iowa for like six years, so I mean, it, I mean, we all coalesced pretty quickly. Okay. You were the referee at Ultimate Wrestling, June twenty fifth, nineteen ninety nine, when Dan Sever fought Brad Kohler. Yep. Could you tell us about your experiences refereeing that incredible bout? The the bout or the whole event. So that's something that I get I catch a lot of flack for because that was one that, that Monty did an amateur show like a regional amateur you know come sign up and you can fight right uh, and so that's when Ben Rothwell first fought as well or one of his early fights you, right. I'm sure you guys have seen it where Ben does like the double knee drop onto the guy's back oh no I haven't wow. you guys don't remember that it's, oh, it's fantastic. So so it's, it's just open, open call for fighters. Uh, ben Rothwell signs up. Ben Rothwell's like 18. He's six foot four, 280 pounds, whatever he is. You know, he's Ben Rothwell. He's the monster, but he's only 18. He's a young, wild, crazy kid. On the other side of the bracket, the only other heavyweights were there was a guy that was about five, nine and three fifty, maybe 400 should not have been fighting. Was a big fan of the sport. Big fan of pro wrestling was just this was his chance to live his dream, but he should not have been fighting. And I'm the referee. But Monty's like, hey, that's your opponent, pointing at Ben. Are you sure you want to fight? And the guy's like, yeah, I'm all in. I want to do it. And I'm like, like, Jesus Christ, man, do not do this. You're going to get hurt bad. You should not do this. But he knew. He knew what he was in for. Or at least, well, he didn't know what he was in for, but he knew. He saw Ben. He's like, yeah, I want to fight. And he's like, I'm going to kick his ass. You know, he was all for it. So I go over to the fight, you know, I'm, I'm doing their meeting in the, in the corner and I go over to Ben and I'm looking at him and I go, dude, look at your opponent. Don't fucking hurt this kid. You know, just, I don't know, take him down and smother him or something. Be nice to him. And Ben is so, you know, he's 18. He's so hyped up. He's just, you know, he's going not crazy. Even yeah. yeah. He's not even listening. So I go, you know, I talk to the other kids, same thing. I'm like, Hey, you feel like you're in trouble tap, blah, blah, blah. And I'm trying to give him as many outs as I can. So they go out there, you know. So it's all in now. <laughs> exactly. And he was all in, you know. Uh, the one thing that made him nervous was that he thought he was going to have to take his shirt off in the fight. And Monty's like, no, 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 leave your shirt on. That was it. That's all he cared about. He's like, oh, thank God. I can leave my shirt on. I'm good. <laughs> Let's go fight. <laughs> that, that was his, uh, his rider. You know, green M&M's, leave my shirt yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it was goes out there crowd control. The, the yeah, women would have gone nuts. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> keep him under wraps. But uh, so Ben goes out there and starts lighting him up and just, you know, just beating the shit out of him, just wildly flailing. The guy falls down and Ben jumps and does like a pro wrestling double knee drop on the small of his back. Awesome. So, and that's illegal. I can't remember exactly what it was. Maybe you're not allowed to, maybe a knee to the back or something was illegal. It's a so spine I, attack. Yeah, something like that. So I stopped the fight right away and I'm like, Ben, go to the corner. I stand the guy up and he's holding his back and he's grimacing and he's hurting really bad. And I'm like, Hey man, if you can't continue, you win fights over. Do you want to continue? 
I go, I'm like, look, man, what he just did was illegal. If you can't continue, fight's over, you win. And he's like, no, 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 just give me a minute. I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I want to keep fighting. I'm like, are you sure? Did you hear what I said? The fight could be over and you win. <laughs> he's like, no, 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 I'm good. I want to do it. I want to do it. And I'm like, all right, man, whatever. Like, it would have been his greatest win ever. Yeah, I'm like, all right, take a minute. You know, and so I, I start the fight again. Ben just fucking lights him up. He hits him with some punches, drops him again. This time jumps on him, hits him a couple times. I stop the fight. But I mean, what are you going to do? Like, I gave that guy every single chance, not only to get out of the fight, but get out of the fight with a win. And he would not take it. So now that, that fight, you can find it on Shades YouTube. Shades of Anthony Smith. Yeah. But, I mean, you can find it on YouTube and people criticize me. They don't know it's me. They're like, oh, that referee fucking sucks. How did you let that happen? I'm like, dude, you guys don't know. I was trying <laughs> to give that guy a way out. I was trying to give him a win and he would not take it, man. He wanted to go down on his, go down like a warrior. So, I mean, credit <laughs> to him, man. He was, he should not have been in there, but he stepped in and did his best and he would not take the easy way out. You know what? You got to give him credit where credit is Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Credit. Now, let's on talk the about event. the main events because <laughs> that was definitely not the highlight of that night. Normally, you would say, man, that's a fantastic story. What happened at the next fight? Yeah. No siree. Yes, Brad indeed. Kohler, Dan Sever. Yeah, so I didn't realize what was coming until about halfway through. You're getting blindsided. Yeah, I didn't know. You know, I'm like, I'm talking to him. I'm doing the, you know, meeting in the corner and blah, 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 going through the rules and everything. And then they start. And at first, it, you know, they're, they're selling it okay. It looks okay. And then at one point, they're in a clinch. And I can't remember who throws who, but they move to the corner. And one guy fucking belly to belly is the other guy out of the ring. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, this is getting a little bit hokey here. What's going on? You know, now I'm watching a little closer and I'm seeing that they're, you know, they're kind of leaning into each other. They're, you know, and I'm like, okay, Jesus Christ. This is a- I'm in the middle of a fake fight. And yeah. I, I just realized it. <laughs> and yeah, and you can kind of, you can kind of see, like, at first I'm like, I'm pretty attentive and I'm trying to make sure, you know, there are two big guys thrashing around in there. It's going to be dangerous. Somebody falls out of the ring. And then you see my demeanor go from like this to like this. And I'm like, all right, you guys just fucking do whatever you're going to do. I'm Hurry not, up. I don't have Get anything else with. to say anymore. <laughs> So yeah, but and I, I think, think that I, fight ended with a ten count out of the ring, though. Am I correct? Yeah, if I remember correctly, that that sounds right. They go out of the ring. Somebody can't come back in. They an injury of some sort or something like that. I don't know. Fantastic. You know, you know what was crazy? The crowd's going nuts the entire time. Oh yeah, yeah, they were eating it up. <laughs> I, I, the crowd thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. it's wild, wild. Um. Pat Militich fights Shoney Carter, Extreme Challenge 27. Pat is the current UFC world champion. Shoney comes in. He's known as Hollywood at this time. He's 25-1-2. Militich is 29-2-2. This was an absolute dogfight. Yeah. Did you expect that going into Uh, this with Pat? No, honestly, I thought Pat would have finished him a lot sooner. Um I guess Pat had a little bit of a uh, shoulder issue going on in that fight, so he couldn't couldn't really throw uh, punches as well as he normally does. But and Shoney, of course, is a gamer. He, uh, he you know, he's Shoney's very deceptive. So his stand up is good. His wrestling is very good. His jujitsu is good, and he's strong. And he, you know, he's a he's an old school pro that's that knows how to how to survive basically. So 
you know, he just he he was able to make it a fight. And, and so Shoney actual ring time, Shoney's up there too, you know. Oh he's, yeah. He's oh, I mean he's, he's a weekend fight every weekend kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, there was a bar in Chicago where him and Brian Gassaway both were kind of like the reigning champions of their weight class, and it was the same thing. Like they'd go in for the weekend. And like, hey, take all, you know, all challengers. Anybody want to fight, step in and you can fight. And Shoney and Brian both, granted, they're fighting half-drunk bums that don't train, but they're getting 10 or 15 fights a weekend each. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that, that ring time builds up and it, it brings you just a level of composure and, and focus that and it doesn't matter how good your opponent is, you, 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 it's beneficial. So it was called the Tropicana. And it was a Hispanic nightclub where they had a club champion and you and one friend could drink for the rest of the night if you had, like, won. And the club champion was a Hispanic guy that Shoney ended up beating up. And Shoney's probably got about 90 fights just at that bar alone. I believe it. I used to have them on, on VHS. Like, Shoney put them all on VHS for me. Oh, I'd, I'd have to really dig through my stuff to see if I still have yeah. it. Yeah, so Shoney's got a lot of ring time. If you watch Militich Shoney one, it, it's if you look at what takes place in that, it's I defy you to try to say like what year it took place in without looking at the age of the video because it looks like a modern fight. It is yeah. incredible. Yeah, both guys very skilled, very evenly matched, and and both of them very well rounded. Like yeah, even fighting, even wrestling, even jujitsu, you know, you don't see that yeah. very often, especially in fights that old. When we interviewed Shoney, um, he said, man, I was so confident going into that fight. I, I paid for my own travel. I brought friends with me. He's like, I was going to go fight the world champion who, who I knew I could beat. And I'm like, well, what happened in it? He's like, I found out what it was like to fight an actual world champion. That's what, that's what happened. No excuses. He was the better man. He's like, that fight really hurt me because I wanted it so bad. Shoney says he cried the whole way home from Davenport to Chicago. Shoney's yeah. a good dude, man. He was, he yeah. was good for the sport. A absolutely. January 15th, 2000, you fight on Jam for Jamie Levine. Oh, Pat Militish fights for Jamie Levine against Pele Landis. Yeah. In my opinion, you say it was with Jens Pulver. I think this is pre-UFC purchasing, like our Dana purchasing UFC. Yeah. But I think this is kind of when Monty may have kind of rubbed some people the wrong way. Sure. Yeah, it's very possible. And that's the thing. Monty would go out and do whatever he could that was in the best interest of his fighters. And, he, you know, he wouldn't intentionally screw over promoters, but he didn't really care. Like the promoters were not his priority. His fighters were his priority. So he was yeah. going to do what's best for them. So, yeah, I mean, putting Pat into a fight like that was, you know, probably not in the best interest of the UFC and Dana. No, no. So it, it, I mean, for people at home, he fights Haley Landis, who is at the time there, people were arguing pound for pound. He was number one in the world. And Militish fights him. The rumor was Pat went in with uh, a shoulder injury and had a fight with like a lidocaine shot. His his back was really messed up. Like he, you know, he had broken his back, so he had constant issues with it all the time, and it was flaring up. His back was in really bad shape. Here, this is what I, I got. I was pretty plagued with injuries through most of his career. He had a lidocaine shot into his sacro sacroiliac joint, is what I found. 
I, I think that's like low spine pelvis area. I'm okay, guessing. so you're right. Yeah. So he, he loses corner stoppage with, with Pele. Um, you were obviously there. Yep. Um, what was it like dealing with Jamie Levine as a promoter? The same part, I think when I fought Miguel, I think, because we all yeah. three or four spot on that card. Um, Levine was fine. I mean, again, Monty dealt with him more than I did because that's more promoter-manager talk. But I, I was fine with him. I, you know, again, I just I hide in my hotel until it's time to go fight, and then I go fight. I really don't talk to too many people. <laughs> and March first, two thousand, Mark Coleman enters the Grand Prix. What was it like having Coleman in your gym? Uh, pretty intense. Uh, Mark's a, Mark's a good dude. Um, but yeah, he he, he brought it to the gym. Um, the the one thing that we always, at least that I always tried to help encourage for him was developing a little bit better technique when it comes to jujitsu, better understanding of it. And his mentality was always like, I'm going to train as hard as I fight. I just want to come in. I just want to beat my head against my opponent. You know, I mean, that's kind of the wrestler mentality. You know I mean? It's not to say that it's not to say that wrestlers don't have technique because they certainly have a high level of technique, but they, they have an equally high level of, of drive and aggressiveness. And that's a large part of, of wrestling, you know? Uh, and that's what Mark always brought, to the table was I'm coming at you a hundred percent until I can't anymore. So I was Did Matt Hughes to... ever going to take down against Mark Coleman. Um, it's possible. I mean, I didn't see all their, all their matches. Matt was a, a really good wrestler. Mark was huge though. And also a very good wrestler. So possible. Did Steve Rusk get a takedown against Mark Coleman? I would think probably Steve, Steve Rusk was also a very good wrestler, but and he was more like, 220 so much closer to mark's size so yeah that, that wouldn't surprise me a bit ladies and gentlemen in our comment section mark coleman is now claiming that none of those happened <laughs> just an fyi hey, I, I got a question for you Jeremy. you talked at the beginning of the interview about like when you went up to militich and stuff and they trained rough and there was no malice but as things developed here you know coleman's a guy that you know, brings a level of intensity. Hughes, in particular, was known as being mean in the gym. And there may have been some malice in some of those later training. You know, I, I, I heard oh. one, I think, I think you choked Gravison out like you were on your third or fourth choke out or something like somebody choked Gravison out multiple times just to prove the point. It's like it got pretty mean in there. So, so yes, let me, let me clarify. When I said there was no malice, I meant when I started – I didn't experience any malice from any of those guys as, as the gym developed and more <laughs> fighters came to train. Yes. There started to be a bit of a territorial vibe where if you're going to come train, you have to kind of prove that you're, you're capable of, you know, staying here. And I didn't really do much of it. Cause I was always, I don't know. I, I'm always like the good Samaritan, good shepherd, try to help. You're looking at the Obi-Wan Kenobi kind information. of yeah. So yeah, I saw a lot of guys get beat up. I saw a lot of guys get roughed up. But again, it it wasn't malicious. It was like, look, I'm going to push you as hard as I can because I want to make sure number one that you're capable of being here, and number two, I want to make you better. So I'm going to push you as hard as I can, and I'm not doing it out of malice, but I am going to fuck you up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know if your intent matters much when the result is still I'm going to knock you unconscious but I'm doing it for your own good. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, everybody in Iowa was always really cool. Everybody wanted to train hard. Um, 
I never saw anybody getting beat up maliciously, but I saw a lot of guys get beat up. But it was just, you know, if you can take it, take it. If you can give it, give it. And there was no malice to it. Miguel, we're coming up on a two-hour mark. Jeremy, I am please. I've we'd like to continue with your career, but could we open it up to some general questions? Absolutely. In the future, we need you again. I would love to, man. I love chatting with you guys. It's awesome to to reminisce and kind of go back and uh, claw through the, the the history. Yeah, it's awesome. All right. You've rolled with a couple people that I need to know about. Rulon Gardner, Olympian. Oh man, that's. I mean, he's his 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 uh, standing wrestling obviously is, is top notch, but his size is. I mean, that's that's a huge weapon for him. You know, like I could I could hold him in my guard for a few moments, but as soon as I got a little out of position and he put five hundred pounds of weight on my leg, I can't stop him. You know, if he gets to side control on top of you, he can he could post up on his arms and legs as tall as he possibly could and arch his back like a cat. And there was still 300 pounds of weight on my chest. He just he's just such a huge man that like if he's on top of you, you're in trouble. It's just all there is to it. Were you surprised he didn't stick with fighting? No, it didn't really seem like it was in his mentality. You know, he was like, I've, I've seen it a lot and I don't know if he really fully falls into this, but there are some people who are fighters and there are some people who are competitors that happen to be good at fighting, right? If you're a fighter, then it doesn't, I mean, you get your teeth knocked out and your nose broken and you're still coming forward. If you're a competitor and somebody punches you and breaks your nose, like, ah, maybe had enough, right? He struck me as more of a competitor than a fighter. And maybe, maybe that's just only as it pertained to MMA, because I know in wrestling, you know, and I know in the rest of his life, he really dealt with his, dealt with a lot of adversity that would indicate that he's a fighter. But uh, he just maybe just didn't really seem like it was for him. Okay. What about Jake Shields? Um, same. Talented, very, very, very talented, uh, good grappler, but just didn't strike me as a fighter. He was a competitor that happened to be very good at what he was good at, you know. Perfect example. Jake Shields, competitor. Nick, Nick and Nate Diaz, fighters. You know, it's got nothing to do with your level of technique. It's about your emotional state when you go into, into that competition. Nick and Nate Diaz are fighters. Jake Shields is a competitor. He wants to win. He wants to win a match. What Nate do you consider yourself? Fighter. I'm a fighter. I go into a fight. I want to hurt somebody. I'm not here to win a competition. I'm here to, I'm here to fuck you up. And coming, along, and coming along with that means I'm going to win, but I'm here to I'm here to to beat you. I'm here to hurt you. You know, Jeremy, like you mentioned, Jake Shields, competitor, Nick Diaz, fighter. You like to stay in your room. You don't drink. You don't use drugs. You're not at the bar getting rowdy. You consider yourself a fighter, but did you have many street fights growing up? Not really. I mostly That's kept amazing. myself. I had a couple of street fights, but really, like, if you're not on the streets, you're not getting in street fights. <laughs> so. I was always at the gym or I was at home, so I didn't do much. I mean, you're obviously a fighter. It's, I mean, that's, that's not where my question is. It's just the path of a fighter is just, it couldn't be more different than you mentioning the Diaz brothers and that of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the same. I mean, a lot of times, maybe if I had grown up in a different environment, I, I might have had a different path. I might have been in more street fights, but like, you know, I had a paper out when I was a kid and then I would go to the gym and train and then I'd come home and play video games. Till I went to bed. So, I mean, I just, 
you know, I, I wasn't the type to, to be out running the streets. I, you know, I just didn't have any interest in that because I was at the gym. Very similar to Nick and Nate Diaz. I know they used the jujitsu gym a lot as a, as a, uh, you know, a hideaway from the streets, but obviously they were in a much rougher area. So maybe the streets were forced on them a bit more and they couldn't really avoid it. I, I don't know. I don't want to comment on their lives, but I know that, you know, those guys are both fighters through and through. Now you did not go to Japan for the Grand Prix. Am I correct? Uh, with Coleman? No, no, I didn't. When did you guys, do you know when they would have found out when Mark Kerr and Coleman were on the same side of the bracket? No, I don't remember. I got a question for you, too. You're in Utah now, and I think Walt Bayless is from out there. He's a guy that there's a lot of que- – like, uh, one there's reference I have for him is – yeah, one reference we have for him is Mark Schultz, like who's yes. like about an elite and a wrestler, and he has a lot of respect for him. But Walt's a guy that was a trainer without a lot of that fight actual experience that we can see. Have you ever rolled with him? Have you ever had – no, oh, I never did. When, uh, when when I moved out here, he had, I believe he had moved to New York. So Walt Bayless was uh, one of those guys that's like just weirdly talented in whatever he chooses to do. So if he decides he's going to be in martial arts, he's going to be really good at it. Um, what I had heard when I moved out here, I had heard he was in New York and he had decided to become a, an artist, a painter. And so I saw some of his artwork and it's incredible. Like kind of, kind of the old school, um, like the old Conan and the Barbarian comic books, kind of that, that kind of graphical style. style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really good artwork. He just, he's just gifted in whatever he decides to do. So when I moved out here, the gym that I trained at was run by a guy named Griffin Reno, excuse me, who was one of Walt's top students, um, so, I mean, I got, I got to train with some of the Walt Bayless guys, but never himself. So he's kind of a controversial figure. Like the people that very much, uh, so. there's a lot of questions, more questions than I believe that there are answers, but yeah. people such as yourself and Mark Schultz, who obviously we, we admire both say, no, man, they guys yeah, they're very talented. Yeah. Well, I, saw him, I saw the video of him wrestling with Mark Schultz, you know, and, and Bayless was, he was a big, strong athlete, right? He's 6'2", 250 pounds, I think something like that. And, and he could reportedly do one-arm pull-ups. Oh, my so, God. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a freak strong athlete. So if you take any kind of athlete like that and give them any measure of technique, they're going to be a formidable opponent. You know, and I watched, I, you know, I had seen some of his, uh, Walt Bayless's instructional videos. He had a, he had a good sense of, uh, has, he's not dead. He has a good sense of knowledge and leverage and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, but uh, all of that is going to be enha- enhanced by his high level of athleticism and strength. Wow, wow, wow. Miguel, that's a two-hour mark, buddy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, No problem, man. I I would love to come back anytime you guys want. All right. We would like to continue this. Maybe next week we can get another recording session in. We'd like to map out your whole career. We did it with Chris Brennan already. Um, Wildly popular, actually, with with our listeners. And there's very few people that fit the, the Chris Brennan, Jeremy Horn category. And We've got to, we've got to do it, bro. We got to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. Wednesdays are usually pretty good for me. So if you guys want to keep it up on Wednesdays, my, my schedule is pretty flexible. Mornings are always good, but uh, Wednesday mornings, we kind of play it day by day. So yeah. Perfect. Cool. All right. We're signing off here. Lights out podcast. Another deep dive. Jeremy Horn. 
your class is uh, school's out, I guess, right? That's how it is. It? For now, for now, yes. Thanks, <laughs> Thank guys. you, brother. All right, so thanks, guys. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.